This podcast was recorded on March 23rd, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. everybody. Welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here today with a special guest. His name is Larry McDonald. Welcome to the show, Larry. Jeff, great to be with you guys. Yep. And um, also today I have my co-host here. Sorry about it, Sam. I forgot to introduce you. Sam Lau's here. Hey, hey. Yeah. So there's the hey, hey. So Larry, for those who don't know about uh, Larry, you know, he's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he's a, a frequent contributor to CNBC. Um, he writes the Bear Traps Report. It's a globally recognized platform, um, always always delving into political risk, systemic risk, but most importantly, actionable trade ideas. I think that's what a lot of people are looking for, Larry, today on what to do. But also, you are the creator of the Larry McDonald Show and the series you have on Real Vision. So we're pleased to have you today on the Sherman Show. So welcome, Larry. Thank you, Jeff. And I would say, you know, as a former Lehman trader, our book was about the crisis and Lehman Brothers. And I tell my wife once a month, if we sell a million books, we'll break even on our Lehman stock. So. <laughs> <laughs> you must have a good deal on your, bu- on your book deal, it sounds like. Because yeah. <laughs> I know you had a lot of stock there when you were there. So, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Larry, we've been talking really for the last like nine months or so, you and I have, and we were talking about the reflation trade and, you know, thinking about the impact of fiscal and monetary policies last year. And, you know, uh, there's some things that really came as a worry from you that resonated well with us, and it really centered on the Fed. Maybe you can walk us through how you've thought about the Fed, our dependent relationship as investors on the Fed, and is it different this time, or should it be always in, in Bernanke we trust, in Yellen we trust, and as now in Jay Powell we trust? So take it from there. Well, you know, the Fed has their hands full this time because you know, over the last decade, you've had deflation scare after deflation scare after deflation scare. And every time they've tried to move policy, the dollar has strengthened and it's caused a decent amount of inequality, a decent amount of global disruptions. And I just think that, you know, your Brexits, your last decade, your tea parties, your Brexits, your trade wars, your COVIDs, even just like literally seven things in a row since 2013, just it all drove deflation to the point where there were a couple of days in 2018, late 18, early 19, where, I mean, I was sitting on the trading desk and we had bid without for bonds, like no offer, like a couple of days, it was absolutely crazy. So the Fed has been dealing with this deflationary beast. And also, if you think of one thing, you've been doing a great job on these podcasts, inflation assets versus, uh, well, I guess you could call it the financial assets versus hard assets. And because of this 10-year psychology around deflation that's been coming back, there's the crowding in these deflation trades like financial, like long-term cash flow and tech stocks, which are essentially like the tech stock is essentially just like a, a long-term bond. And, um, you know, there's just the psychology to buy the, you know, buy every pullback in there is really setting up for I think, a big drop because the Fed is really adamant about not going down that road again and, and really fighting inflation. Right. So when you think about inflation, um, you know, a lot of people focus on the money supply. We saw M2 and record growth last year. I think it increased north of 25%. Um, a lot of people also focus on trade deficits, you know, um, just the amount of fiscal spending that we're, we're doing this country. Um, there's rumblings that there's a new plan on back of the $1.9 trillion deficit that was just passed, uh, that there's a new plan, roughly $3 trillion in, in infrastructure type spending. What are the catalysts though? When you see inflation, what do you think about when you look under the hood? Because uh, a lot of people talk about money supply. We haven't seen inflation pick up because there's been no commensurate velocity pickup, right? So yeah. what, are, what are the catalysts and what are the drivers that really alerts you to be on inflation watch? 
Well, you know, you're, you're, you, you got the vaccines, which are just, if you really look at all the channels, there's probably, you know, 10 to 12 different vaccine channels, which will trigger a ton of velocity and money finally, as like, as you said, velocity has been a big hangover. But, um, you know, depositing capital into people's bank accounts is something that, you know, definitely didn't take place in the post Lehman era. And, uh, and, and it, it's really unintended consequences, really an experiment. And, and so we, we may have a situation here where, where employers to get people back into the labor force. Right now, there's 13 million. If you just look at, if you look at the employment to population ratio, it's close to 61 a year, I say 14 months ago, and now it's close to 57. So it's close to 4%. If you do the math, it's 13 million people that are outside the labor force that relative to 14 months ago. And then, so, so now I think the Fed is going to really, if you think of like the 2012 election, you have Romney versus Obama. And the Fed was, I think, playing some politics where they weren't really, they didn't care about U6, uh, which is employment to population. And right now it's about 11% unemployment rate if you look at U6. Uh, in, in 2012, in the previous era of the Fed, they were more concerned about U3 and just as almost like a, uh, I don't want to call it a fake employment number, but it's just right now we're dealing with so much inequality. And because the, the, the crisis is so close to us now, and there's just so many people that are outside the labor force, they really want to get those people back in. So they're going to they're gonna dig in their heels around inequality this time relative to the previous cycle. And uh, so they're going to stay a ton more accommodative. And what that means is really containing that beast, that serpent, the dollar, is what's caused every single deflationary problem that we've had in the last decade, you know, that where they, where they basically give too much color on their forward progress, their forward guidance, the dollar strengthens because they see an exit relative to the other central banks on the planet. And so the Fed's more, was more hawkish, get a stronger dollar, and it just causes you know, blows up the global economy and then all of that feeds back in the United States in terms of inequality and deflation. So, so this time, I think because of the crisis and because it's like coming out of World War II and you've got 13 million people and the Fed's really embarrassed by the previous decade of, of inequality and, and creating uh, really hundreds of billionaires. And so all of this, this environment today sets up for a far different posture for the Fed, which should create in a much more inflationary probability than we had the previous decade. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting comment because what you see too is a, a lot of people and pundits out there have blamed the Fed for a lot of the inequality too, right? Or at least yeah. they've helped exacerbate the situation by you know, uh, promoting financial assets um, and, and really not focusing on, as you're talking about the labor force. And we hear this from the Fed now where they're, they're really talking about, you know, having a broad participation. They're talking about uh, trying to build up minorities and women who've also been disproportionately affected by COVID in the labor force as well, not just from an income standpoint, but also uh, just from uh, just the jobs in general. So when you think about the Fed's messaging here, um, is it really the inequality that they're really going to drive? Or is it just that they're, they're just tired of these QE policies, they're being blamed for uh, creating this wealth effect. We're hearing wealth taxes more and more as now is, is the other side trying to counteract it. So when you think about the Fed and what they're doing, are they really to blame here? Or is this just the kind of the animal spirits of markets, which are driving some of this wealth inequality as well? Well, even today, um, Governor Brainerd is talking up, you know, climate change. So you've got climate coming into the picture. You've got all these things. So it's, Unfortunately, they are, they are to blame for the previous decade because they they exited too early. The dollar strengthened too much, and I, I'm convinced that you know the 2016 election, Donald Trump never would have without that populism in the economy and, and that income inequality, without that um, the amount of people, the amount of like just look at the Rust Belt, 2014, 15, 16, as the dollar moved from say 88 to to 104. And just the Rust Belt decimation in terms of jobs to the rest of the world, and and just so now I think that they've finally you know been beaten over the head so many times with this that if they can contain the dollar and stay more dovish relative to the other central banks uh, for an extra year or so, an extra year they'll 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 keep that dollar weaker. Uh, the, the risk is is that they in order to do that they may have to flirt with 
at least opening the door to yield curve control and that would be something that would be or or very strong calorie guidance because those are the tools that it would take to really stay that much more dovish. But if they do that, they're going to help so much in terms of the assets that just the deflationary forces of that stronger dollar, because there's so much debt on the planet Earth, it's tied to the dollar and so much trade, the dollar's deflationary forces are so much greater than, than most people realize. And, and, and you can just see it in the data over the last decade. So I think they, they get this now. And uh, for, the, uh, for the first time, they're really going to have to dig in and contain that dollar, keep it weaker. And that's why I think you see much more, the, like the, the previous decade, financial assets, tech stocks did great. Uh, the next decade, commodity, value, those types of trades are going to dramatically outperform, especially the next like two to, two to three years. Okay. So with that too, I, I remember a quote being attributed to President Trump and he was saying that, you know, the, a strong dollar sounds good in theory, but it's actually the antithesis of what you want. I'm paraphrasing there. I don't think he uses words like antithesis, but the, the, <laughs> idea, the idea is that, you know, the devaluation of the dollar is one way to really help competition and really to, to really promote some of these assets. And so you talked about the kind of reversal of some of these policies. So uh, you've been very bullish on the commodity trade. I'd like to get your updated thoughts there. You also mentioned value in that in, in part of this reflation idea. So maybe you could uh, distill those two pieces for me. Why so bullish on commodities? Is it truly just a dollar play? Is it a restocking reflation? And then secondly, why value? Well, the commodity play, what I like about it is you had a real Hall of Fame capitulation in 2016 that was driven a lot which had to do with the dollar and the global economy and what you call, you know, basically too large a supply of commodities on the planet, um, a lot of capex. I think if you just look at mining and oil, at least you're talking about three trillion of capex has come out since 2014-15. So because of that debacle in 2016, and because of the debacle of COVID, so within four years, you had two Hall of Fame capitulations in commodities, which if you just talk to CFOs and treasurers of these companies, the way they invest and deploy capital and deploy CapEx, uh, they're so wounded, Jeff. There's just, I mean, I've been on call after call and the psychology of these people, uh, you know, Mr. Glassberg from, from, from uh, you know, the, the great Hall of Fame commodity companies are losing their, their, their CEOs now. Uh, you know, the Glencores of the world. So just just commodities in general have been through such a horrific capitulation process. CFOs, the way they deploy capital, have held back, held back, held back. So just the supply of every single commodity that you look at is, is, in, a, is in a deficit relative to a demand-induced, you know, vaccine revival, reopening, that it could get, it could get really in some ways scary in like a year, year and a half from now, because the, the, the so much CapEx has come out. And then if you have the snapback, there's just not going to be enough of supply to meet the demand. And then and these these companies are like moving aircraft carriers. I mean, uh, Glencore is a perfect example. Um, you know, the, the, the amount of CapEx, you're talking about two, three years of projects, tech resources, the stock that we, we like in Canada, they're investing in, in projects today, then they won't monetize those those uh, the copper reserves for another two, three years. So it, it's just like, it, it, it's a real crazy dynamic around supply demand that I think we're gonna have a real 1970s type problem in about 18 months. Yeah, and before I let you talk about value, um, I, I do wanna point out too, a lot of people forget because they just think it's so easy to create commodities. You just open the spigot and oil comes out of the ground. Um, but when you're talking about metals and mining, I mean, it's one, it's CapEx intensive, as you mentioned, but also it's got to be financed. It takes years to, to really dig into the mine. You got to pave the road, you get the smelting online, you got to transfer the asset. I mean, it is a two to three year cycle just to ramp supply. And as you mentioned, this underinvestment is really critical if we're going to have this demand driven side, we're going to have supply shortages. So um, we, we do agree with that thesis. But so I think about commodities. I think about that driving some form of inflation. How does that play into your idea about value? Because a lot of investors think, well, value, if we're going to have this big growth boom, don't I want to own growth stocks, not value stocks? Maybe you could explain um, the, the research behind that. 
Well, if you think of because of the previous decade, so you had you know tea parties, Brexit, trade wars, COVIDs, and you've got central bankers that are really trying to prevent the business cycle from functioning. In other words, they've been trying to stop the traditional business cycle, which is you know an admirable thing to do, right? They don't want they don't want to see twenty percent unemployment during a uh, you know COVID debacle. So the downside of that is you create well the upside is you create lots of wealth. So you get 110, $120 trillion of wealth. I mean, look at where it is. It's in a lot of bonds that are below 2%. And, and there, it's in a lot of tech stocks. 17 trillion bucks is in the NDX alone. And if you look at the 17 trillion, if you look at just the components of the XLE, which are the mining companies, uh, and then the X, uh, I'm sorry, X, XME and the XLE, so mining and, and the oil and gas, you're only talking, you're talking like a tr- trillion and a half. So a trillion and a half in, in, in the mining and oil space versus 17 trillion in the NDX. So because there's so much capital in the world in these deflation assets, when you have a whiff of deflation, then value comes back because value stocks, just the way companies you know, run, uh, just the way they're structured relative to growth stocks and relative to long streams of cash flows that are coming out of technology companies, the more certain your deflationary path, the more value those, the, the, the net present value of those technology cash flows is great. But once you come into a, a period where inflation's a risk, the net present value of those, of those future cash flows in tech is worthless. And uh, if you talk to, to asset managers around the world, uh, especially the older people with little gray hair like me, uh, they, they will definitely start reallocating capital toward your XME, your, your mining companies. So that trillion and a half dollars that's in oil and mining probably goes to three trillion over the next year and a half, two years. And that 17 trillion that's in the X, uh, you know, the NDX, which is the NASDAQ 100, probably comes down to like 14. So that would just be a simple take, you know, four trillion out of tech, move it into value. And it's just, I, I'm, I've never been more certain about a conviction, high conviction thesis in this because it just, the, the bond market uh, risk to, to inflation is so powerful that that capital has to move into kind of hedges and 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 these hedges are in value stocks, much better hedges. Hey Larry, I wanted to take some of these ideas that we just discussed and put it all together from a portfolio construction standpoint. You know what we've talked about is some reversal of longstanding themes. You know, going into a potentially inflationary environment where. For the most part, we haven't been in deflation, but I, I think it's fair to say that we've seen a lot of disinflation over the course of the, the last uh, few years to decades. Um, with that, perhaps commodities will, will do well, value over growth. Some of these, again, long-term reversals. And we're also seeing uh, what appears to be the beginning, maybe, of rising, rising interest rates off of what may be the historical lows now. So putting it all together, how should investors be thinking about putting some of these ideas into play within their portfolios, what types of risks they should be thinking about uh, in addition to inflation, um, and just go about constructing a portfolio for us, or just ways of thinking about a portfolio. Sure. So one of the things that we've been re- recommending, to the, to, we have a, a Bloomberg chat with about 650 institutional investors, and there are a lot of pension funds in there, a lot of mutual funds, a lot of hedge funds. And we've been kind of like, and, and Jeff was a, Jeff Sherman was a very, he really helped me with, the, with my conviction because we had this thesis in July and, and listening to Jeff and Double Line, it was just that, it gave me that extra conviction. So we started building these portfolios that were, you know, designed around a steeper global yield curve. And so we spent the summer and the fall looking at, you know, all different types of assets. And we looked at Japanese banks, I mean, these Japanese banks have just been through, uh, you know, a multi-decade bear market because we've had yield curves globally uh, that have been extremely boring and haven't steepened, especially in Japan and, and uh, in, in parts, especially in Europe. And so the, the banks in Japan in the fourth quarter are trading at 0.3 times book. And then if you look at in the U.S., where JP Morgan's like 1, 1. 1.7 times book. And that's been going on for a while, but, you, but what, you, what you start to say to yourself is like, 
is if we do have this global reflation or an inflation risk starts to move back, uh, that steeper yield curve, curve globally and where it forces the Bank of Japan to, to basically un, not to widen the band, so to speak. And if, for people that are watching us right now, maybe they aren't into the global central banks, there's, there's a little bit of a band there and Jeff can get into that. But it, where if they have, they're forced to widen that and just the global curve steepening, that's, you, you just literally could have a 100, 200% move in some of these banks in Asia that are trading at 0.3. They probably should be trading at one times book. And, uh, but because of the curve in the last decade of, like I said, Brexit's trade wars, COVID's and uh, tea parties and austerity, us black zero in Germany. I mean, think of black zero. I mean, these guys, I mean, CDU is gone. The CDU is like your, you know, your Barry Goldwater, your conservative um, German politicians. So there's the most conservative politicians on the planet earth around austerity. have all been taken to the woodshed. And it just sets up for a much steeper global curve. So you want to be long in that environment. Stocks, uh, Japanese banks, you want to be long. Uh, look at the EW, EWU portfolio, which is, it's an ETF that's based on the UK. But, but it, it's, it's really, if you look at the portfolio, it's a beautiful basket of, of, of Rio Tinto. So you've got mining companies, you've got portfolios that's really designed around banks uh, and, and commodity-based companies, uh, BP. Uh, Royal Dutch. And so a portfolio that is looking globally uh, at steeper curves, it is, I think is going to dramatically outperform uh, a, a, say, a US-centric financial asset portfolio of, say, tech stocks. Yeah, you mentioned the steepening of the curve and the bands. So for our listeners out there, what Larry's referring to is the, the Bank of Japan just announced that instead of having a 20 basis point band around zero uh, for their tenure, they're going to expand it out to 25 basis points, <laughs> you know, so they're, they're, they're playing the five bit steepener for those that want to do it in size on leverage. Right. Um, so, um, but yeah, I, I think it is important to understand that when you see some of these moves, like you look at the financial stocks in the U S where they're bet they're at new all time highs or that they have hit all time highs this year. Whereas you mentioned like the Japanese banks, uh, you know, they're, there's 80, 90% off their all time highs um, in those regions. And so, when you're thinking about these international plays, are you also trying to play the currency? So are you are you also embedding in there um, a short dollar position? Are you going local currency when it comes to these trades? Or are you just looking for someone who's going to participate in this kind of inflationary-esque environment that that we're all looking uh, towards? Well, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I just think that the only way the Fed gets out of this this time is a, a real, and a, don't forget, it's not just the Fed, it's, it's Janet Yellen and J, Jerome Powell. So as a team, I think they know that the Fed's been staring down the barrel of real deflation risk for a decade. So it's a weaker dollar policy. Uh, like you said, there's another, remember, reconciliation is a very powerful tool in Washington. And the, the problem is you have to tie the bills to a budget year. So they just did one, the 1.9 trillion, and they tied it to a budget year. So that means we, we're really not gonna be able to use reconciliation again, but in the, but in the fourth quarter, you'd be able to tie it to the next year. So you could get, now remember reconciliation, we've only used it, um, you go back to the Obamacare in 2008-9, and then, and then they used it during the Trump tax cuts. In both cases, they tied the bill. So I, I think this the Democrats, Think of if you're a Democrat, right? Obama lost 63 seats in 2010. I mean, President Obama was the probably one of the most, since Ronald Reagan, the most charismatic politician of all time, or at least in the last like 60 years, and next to Reagan. And even, even he in that first midterm didn't want, I mean, really lost control. And they lost, like I said, 63 seats in the House, which is the most since the 1920s. And so Here's President Biden and his entire cabinet knows this, and they know that if they can squeeze in one more reconciliation bill, Republicans cannot stop it. It'll be in the fourth quarter, and then you'll get all that juice heading into the 2022 midterms. And if you just look back, Trump, every single president in the first midterm loses on average 20, 30 seats, I'd say about 22 seats. Trump lost, I think, 32. And like I said, Obama, President Obama lost 63. 
And so you can go back 90 years and that first midterm is trouble. So, but right now, if you look at the House, the Republicans are only like seven seats away, right? So the Democrats have no room for error. So if, you, if you're in the corner back rooms of Washington right now, the, these are smart people. They know, they know their political operatives. They're going to do, they're going to pound another reconciliation bill and the Republicans aren't going to be able to stop it. But it's going to be in the fourth quarter. And so what, what bottom line is this once again pushes you toward uh, a, a Fed, uh, reflation, inflation, and uh, they're really going to do things a lot differently than if you remember like 2010, 11, 12, once the Republicans took the House away from the Democrats, then you had real austerity, real tea parties, and a much more deflationary environment. And so the Democrats are going to do everything in their power to avoid that. And that speaks really well for a portfolio of commodities and uh, value global cyclicals. Okay. So you said that, you know, you, you precluded President Biden from being one of these charismatic people. And I think I'd quote him here. He'd say, come on, man. You know, that would be one of his better quotes. So I had to throw that in there somehow. Um, so when you talk about this and using the process of reconciliation, you're essentially talking about really pushing an agenda, driving what, what we see from the Democrats as very, very large budget deficits, right? There also is this idea that, oh, you know, we're going to run three, four trillion dollar deficits. We're going to raise taxes on the wealthy, which doesn't even move the needle. So really, what do you see here? Like when you think about if you look at this, it's probably we're going to hit 30 trillion dollars in a national deficit this year under that guise. What does this mean for the long term for the U.S. economy? Does the debt matter? Is it just inflation is going to solve our problems? Are we talking about, you know, a historic jubilee in biblical sense? What are you thinking about as the outcome and the consequences for this kind of, I won't call it reckless spending, but this really unprecedented amounts of spending as a percentage of GDP and in nominal dollars as well? Well, I, I, mean, I may want to make back a point, one thing clear. So a normal bill um, can be blocked with a filibuster and it normally needs 60 votes in the Senate. And so reconciliation is only 50. So by... You only need 50 votes in the Senate. So that's that's why the, de the Democrats will probably push through a new Green New Deal type infrastructure plan that will be re you know, really another two trillion dollar plan. And, and the sales pitch will be, you know, we're going to create so much growth from this that and we're going to that we'll be able to raise taxes in a year. So it'll be a sales pitch, a lot like Trump was pitching, you know, create the big deficits and grow your way out of it. That'll be the sales pitch. And um, it's going to, at the end of the day, the biggest trade of our lives was this whole dynamic going back to, to the 2012 election, the 2010 election, everything that's going to force the Democrats to, to try to really spend on infrastructure in, in December. It's going to force the Fed at some time in the next six, nine, 12 months, almost as sure as God made little green apples into yield curve control. Because if you just look at the amount of duration risk on, and you talked about this in the third and fourth quarter around the, the, the bonds in the pension funds that are exposed to traditional risk parity. And no, you know, nobody's really allocated toward uh, stocks, bonds, commodities even yet. And so if that's, there's just so much wealth, $100 trillion or so, 110, it, and, and because so much of that wealth just look at the amount of bonds that were sold last year at record low rates. So that means that 50 basis points increase in bond yields today in terms of damage and credit risk is the equivalent to like 2% move higher in yields 10 to 15 years ago. So it's just the slightest move up in yields is going to have a much bigger destructive force on risk assets and the Fed's going to have to basically come in like after, people forget after World War II, I think we were in yield curve control for you know, 17, 18 years. And so that gets you a weaker dollar. The Fed's gonna try to like do what the Bank of Japan did. They won't, they won't do as such an you know, extreme ban, but they will try to uh, cap the long end and they'll try to cap maybe the middle part of the curve. And remember once again, they're trying to support the housing market. They don't want rates to back up on credit cards and all like, so they'll, you know, this this bottom line is this historic two reconciliation bills inside of a year 
is going to force the Fed into yield curve control. So you want to set up for that trade. It's probably the trade of our lifetime. So a lot of the things we've been talking about there has been around debt and fiscal deficit spending. And it really seems like the path that we've undertaken here, at least here in the U.S., I'm sure there's countless other countries facing a similar situation where just massive amounts of debt are being thrown into the economy to achieve some type of economic growth. And, you know, we can talk about what was needed in the years immediately you know, after the, the global financial crisis. And then here we are again with uh, the pandemic and even more uh, higher levels of debt, you know, necessary to really dig us, ourselves out of a hole. But really, if we think about the eight years or so since, you know, between the, the, the global financial crisis to where we are today, and I'm not talking about, you know, from the 2008, but let's just say it from 2012, where the economy started to seem to, to, to be a little bit more stable, but it's still required you know, higher than uh, typical deficit spending here in the U.S. to maintain that 2%, 2.5% of uh, growth year-over-year basis. Do you see a scenario where we're ever going to be able to have economic growth absent piles of debt, you know, uh, if de- deficit spending? Because if we do have that infrastructure bill, that could, you know, lead to increased economic activity, uh, but also requires more debt. And we just keep piling on this debt with you know, what the topic that Sherman brought up earlier is like, how are we ever going to dig ourselves out of this? Is this just a recurring cycle that we're just going to have to have uh, and expect going forward? Yeah, this is where I wish I had the brain of Jeff Gunlap because, you know, he, the way Jeff, and there's certain people that when you talk to them, when you listen to them, they've done this math and there's a certain point where yield curve control and with the Fed's ability to just look at the Bank of Japan versus the Fed, um, they're going to try to extend the recovery with yield curve control because that'll get you the weaker dollar. They'll get you um, a better global backdrop. Um, but as you as you laid out there beautifully, I mean, this debt you know is bigger and bigger and bigger. That means that every time you pile on more debt, the slightest move in rates you know has a much bigger negative impact and is much more deflationary. So at some point after the inflation. Uh, scare, which is going to be massive in the next 18 months. The problem is the Lacey Hunt theory, and you know, Lacey's a brilliant uh, strategist, and he just lays it out there. And that theory of like, once you get the growth, uh, growth just isn't sustainable because it, it, it pops rates up, it pops commodities up, that sucks money out of the economy and kills the recovery much faster. So it, it doesn't lend its, the debt just doesn't lend itself to a sustainable long-term recovery. And it, and it probably does cause uh, like a deflationary scare after the inflationary scare. And that's why if you look at five-year, five-year forwards, uh, which are inflation expectations versus tens, there's a fascinating chart. It's like for the first time in a long, long time, that spread, you get a you know, much higher probability of five-year, five-year inflation but that long end, that spread is, is, is very, right now telling you some, some strange things because it's saying that we get this inflation, we get this growth, and it's going to be pretty wild, but it, it just won't be sustainable because the debts uh, will be the sword that, that really crushes the re- recovery. Right. It's the cyclicality of the, of the business cycle, which is the definition of the word. Yeah. Um, so as you, as you think about it, too, so I, I think there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of really good nuggets in there, what you're talking about, because, you know, you're talking about the five-year, five-year forward with the wonky stuff that only us bond guys look at. But what it says is that inflation, if you look at break-even inflation over the five years, it's going to be a lot higher than we've seen. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's back to pre-global financial crisis levels. And you look at like the 10-year inflation rate, it's lower. So what that means is that five years from now, the expectation is that that five-year inflation is going to collapse a bit, right? That, that's kind of the implications there. But one thing that I'm struggling with on the yield curve control, and I'm sympathetic to significantly higher yields, but I struggle with it today. And I've been talking to our clients about this, is that you know I don't believe that the Fed wants to embark on yield curve control yet, because you mentioned it's a slippery slope. Once you get in, Everybody's going to micromanage it and it can, it can really blow up on you. But my, my thoughts on it are, are this today, Larry, and I want to pick your brain on it. If you think about the 10-year rate today, and we're, you know, we're in the mid-160s, call it 165 today. 
you know, the, 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 the really the, the thought is the economy is driven by the five. Right. That's that's really what prices the economy. We've seen that wake up yeah. both in real yields and inflation expectations. However, the 10 year isn't really the economy. There's two really, I think, key things. One is corporate America. Right. You think about the issuance of investment grade corporate debt keyed really off the 10 year part of the curve. Yeah, there's some longer, there's some shorter, but that's the crux of the market. They've refied a lot. Right. We saw the issuance last year, one point nine trillion of gross. Law was refied, stuffed the coffers, built balance sheets. We've seen huge activity. In the first quarter of this year thus far, I think we're on pace for like, you know, roughly three to four hundred billion dollars uh, on a year to date basis already. So does, does corporate America need it? I'd argue no. Right. It's not really going to prop up the economy. It's not going to really help. Right. However, there's one thing you mentioned in the previous response that, that I keyed on to. And it's housing. Right. We know the 30 year mortgage is keyed off the 10 year rate. And so we've seen so much strength in the housing market. Right. Who would have thought? A year ago, double-digit returns for the housing market, broad participation across it. You want to talk about income inequality, this is wealth inequality, right? More people participate in the housing market than the than financial markets, right? Because of that home ownership rate. So one thing is they want to balance out keeping the housing market and keeping people, you know, staying afloat and keeping the activity there. However, do they run the risk of inflating another housing bubble, right? So this is my conundrum I'm thinking about, too, on why I don't think the Fed really wants to do it, because rates can back up a little bit more. It won't have too much impact on mortgages, you know, and it, it may brings at least, you know, some some of this kind of froth out of some of these markets in the housing market today, at least cools them down a little bit. So what are you thinking when you say yield curve control? Do you think it requires a, a certain number on the 10 year? Is it in is it um, coordinated with Ms. Yellen? And when they have to issue the treasuries to finance these budget deficits, how are you thinking about it? Because I think sub 2% on the 10-year, it doesn't make sense to target that. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So the economists today um, are almost at a big disadvantage because the, the economists are looking at traditional economic data. And when they come up with assumptions as to what the Fed's going to do, it's all based on traditional economics. And I would argue that there's so much debt and credit risk, as you said, in the corporate market and in the government market and in, in, in states as well, that you really, economists should spend 50% of their time looking at risk. And so when you come into a recovery situation as we are now, a traditional central bank chair will try to hold some bullets in the chamber. And so what sets up is you start to see a fight between that beast, that serpent in the market, that will, it will push yields higher. And that's what's been happening. So that serpent, that beast is in there. I mean, we've got a, literally a beast in there that's pushing the Fed. And, and what, the, what the beast wants is more certainty of accommodation. So Powell's trying to hold it back. You're absolutely right. The last thing the Fed wants to do right now is pull out a tactical nu nuclear weapon like yield curve control. That's something they want to say. But the beast inside the market will pry that yield curve control out of their hands. And the way they'll do that is, is what's happening now is with those higher yields. Uh, and there's so much more destruction now and risk to those higher yields than there ever has been before. And so the economists are all focused on you know, economic data. And they're just not looking at, just look at emerging markets. Look at, like you said, look at housing. Um, there's 64 trillion of GDP outside the United States, and there's 20 trillion in. So the last thing you want to do, just look at credit default swaps this week. I think financial conditions, Jeff, in emerging markets are tightening at two to three standard deviations faster than what's happening in the United States. In the United States, everybody's just looking at U.S. financial conditions. And the problem is we've been through this in 2018, 2016. When they don't pay enough attention to these things, the beast in the market pushes up yields, brings in strength the dollar, and it just causes so many dislocations in emerging markets that it weakens, it creates a massive deflationary force in the global economy. That's $64 trillion of economic activity, activity that's outside the United States. Remember, that's the fastest growing part of the global economy is emerging markets in China and India. So that's the last thing you want to have really slowing down. And so all of this is sets up where the Fed is, is really going to get forced into tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, the first thing they'll try before yield curve controls, they'll try some type of calendar guidance 
that'll 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 really make that beast that serpent a little bit more happy because right now you know the, the he, they're not defining what is substantial progress i mean it's it's absolutely crazy like he's try, he's fighting that serpent he's fighting that beast they're just asking bill eastman uh, all these all these reporters are asking basic questions like what is substantial progress because the question is how long do you get the 120 billion a month okay do you get it for 6 months if that's the case the serpent in the side of the market the serpent says, oh, I think you're going to taper in six months. So that's why I keep pushing. And Powell's saying, well, so we, we're going to we need substantial progress. And what they're starting to do is they're starting to redefine and tie substantial progress to U6, which was would be unusual historically because they really didn't do that in 2012. And U6 is that 11% employment to population ratio. So that's your inequality factor. So what they'll try to do is tie the $120 billion a month of accommodation They'll, the beast inside the market will really hammer the Fed over the head uh, for more certainty. And the first thing they'll throw out is some calendar guidance that's tied to, okay, we need to see inflation above 2%, between 2 to 2.5 for 12 months before we do anything. Or we need to see that employment to population ratio come from 11% back to, say, 7 or 6 before we stop the, um, the asset purchases at the current pace. And that's what that's what's going to happen. So you're absolutely right. The Fed's going to hold that hold those weapons back. But over the next two three months, in the next thirty days, I think the Fed's going to get more and more pressure from that serpent inside the market. Yeah, um, I want to quote one of my portfolio managers at DoubleLine who said, "I don't know why everyone's so mystified uh, about why you know why the market's being mystified about rates." And so. Or no, he was mystified on why everyone's so mystified. And, you know, I, I thought I thought it was a great a great little succinct quote because if you think about the reflation idea that you and I were talking about last summer, is every market kind of perked up to it. Equities first, we saw it in credit. Credit got back to you know kind of pre-COVID tight levels. Uh, commodities had perked up. Uh, we saw kind of the dollar weaken as well, right? Um, over over the fourth quarter. But treasuries were the last holdout. Yeah, they started creeping up and creeping up, and they finally started to take off, and hence his mystification quote. So the question is, is that why did it take so long for the treasury market? Is it really just that we believe the Fed, we believe all of the, you know, the forward guidance? Because the two-year believes it. The two-year hasn't budged, really. I mean, bad auction today, we're talking about, you know, eighth of a point or something, whatever. But the bond market, the the the, the two-year treasury, which is set on forward guidance, believes the Fed. It's just a back in the cards pricing growth and inflation. So I, I guess really when I think about what took the treasury market so long, because it's been glaring obvious to most of us market participants that the, the treasury market was grossly overvalued in terms of yield. That is, the yield is way too low. What took so long? Well, if you think of like gold and bonds and commodities. Gold made the first move back in March, April, May of 2020 higher because as we started to pass these pieces of legislation, we didn't sell the bonds yet, but we people could see the, the stimulus that's coming. So inflation expectations rose. And so if you think of two cars, inflation expectations were moving at 90 miles an hour and bond yields were moving at like 40. And because they weren't selling the bonds yet. Now, if you look out, you know, there's all kinds of numbers out there, but the rough, simple math is they have to sell four trillion of bonds uh, this year, this the next 18 months, and it's it's about two trillion more than the QE. And so now you have a situation where they're promising more fiscal, but the 1.9 trillion, the new package, isn't nearly in the economy yet. And so we have a little bit of a fiscal cliff, but now the money's finally coming but it probably will be in the economy over this next six months. And, but the, the, the bond sales are here. So the, now the bond sales are moving. Now the bond sales are moving at 90 miles an hour and the inflation expectations have, have it, are, are having a tough time catching up. That's why gold is, and silver are struggling. So now we'll have, it, it's really that dynamic where the, the bond sales just hadn't come in and now the bond sales are here and it's it's worth, it's almost like an experiment because we've never had anything like this, which is another reason why Washington and the Democrats might just force the Fed into yield curve control because we've never had that kind of spread between QE and bonds that have to be sold. And then if you look around the world at corporates that are, have to be sold, you look at Black Zero in Germany, the most conservative politicians 
now I think just this morning, Germany increased the amount of bonds they're going to sell. So everybody is like crowding out the, the, the treasury now for the first time, corporates and Europe. And, and so you've got all these things that are really forcing yields higher because there's that many more bonds for sale. And I think, I think, I think over the next the trade is over the next six months, once the Fed gets forced into yield curve control and inflation expectations continue to rise, that should be good for your metals because uh, that'll slow down that, that increase in the bond yields. Uh, and remember with high yield, the Fed barely bought any bonds, but just threatened it. If the Fed writes like two public white papers on yield curve control and about you know experimenting in the long, just, just that, just like a threat, a white paper would probably suppress uh, some, some yields and, and contain some of this problem. And that would be really good for your metals. So, so I think that's going to be the next like six months where bond yields at some point get tampered down by the, by the Fed. And then uh, because of so much issuance, they're going to have to do something. And then, but inflation expectations will continue to rise and eventually go back to 90, about 90 miles an hour. Okay. Well, we promised actionable items. So <laughs> you hear it from Larry. It's a value trade. Um, it's the reflation of commodities. It's metals. It's miners. It's producers. Um, it's that that uh, energy trade. It's global. It's the Japanese banks. So you heard it here. You heard it here. Uh, we'll we'll check back in yet with you in a year or so when we're a lot wealthier from those trades, Larry. But before we before we let you go, uh, I want I'd like for you to uh, give you the second to tell our listeners where they can follow your research, where they can get in touch with you, and how they can get tapped into some of your thinking here. Well, you know, there's no I in team. I'm really proud of we created this this Bloomberg chat with almost, you know, almost a thousand, about six, seven hundred institutional investors around the world. And it's it's on Bloomberg. People can find me there, institutional investors. What we do every week is we recap the chat in the turning point for the retail audience. So we're trying to, you know, create a little bit of intellectual arbitrage. We're going to share some some of some of what we've learned. So essentially what I do is there's no I and team. I actually just sit in a, in a room and, and do a lot of reading, but talk to people like 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 you, Jeff, and I, that makes me a lot smarter. And then the turning point on at our bear, the beartrapsreport.com website and at ConvertBond on Twitter, uh, we will share those ideas with the retail audience out there. And um, and that, that's what we're trying to do is really democratize information flow. Yeah, um, I, I love the uh, intellectual arbitrage. I've heard the democratization of ideas, but intellectual arbitrage. I'm, I'm all for it. So um, you heard it here, you know, uh, f- follow Larry on, on the Twitter. Uh, you can follow us at Sherman Show Pod at, on the Twitter as well. But Larry, before you go and get back to your day, I know you got a lot more to have uh, to do today. Well, I want to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So Sam, take it away. All right. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. where I will offer a series of alternating prompts unique to each one of you between you and Sherman. So I'm going to kick it off. Well, actually, before I kick it off, I'll say that the hope in attempts to elicit a top of mind response from you is the reason I'm offering those prompts. So I'm going to kick it off with Sherman to give you an example with student loans. So many ways to go with that. Um, not going to be forgiven. All right. And next one for you, Larry is deficit spending. Going a lot higher over the next 18 months. Non-fungible tokens. Yeah, uh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot baked into that word pass, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, U.S. economic activity. Uh, big, big boom this year, uh, followed by a big bust out 18 to 24 months from now. ESG. Crowded. That's not going to be popular. It's not going to be popular, but we're not here to make friends, Larry. You know, that would be my response on that one. Yeah. It reminds me of min vol and low volatility strategies five years ago. Right. Right. As I'll tell you, I'll give you another quote. As one of our portfolio managers said, my job's to make money. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that to the virtues from there. Uh, but our portfolios can't always be virtuous. So again, <laughs> I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail on that. I want to save the world, but you can't. You can only do it one way at a time. So. All right, this one's for you, Larry. Digital dollar. 
pitch of the dollar. Uh, a lot of talk from central bankers, but the reality will be probably two to three times longer than people think. A Solar exemption to Sherman. It's complicated, but I think they're going to give some reprieve on treasuries and not have the high capital charge. I think that's what you'll see from them. So essentially, um, you know, if they don't do it, um, it's going to be challenging because holding treasuries is a high penalty for the bank. So uh, I think there's going to be some exemption for treasuries going forward. And I think that's what you'll see from the Fed in the next few weeks. State and local taxes. Okay, state and local taxes will force new forms of revenue, bullish for cannabis type equities. Crude oil. Undersupplied. Medium term on, on Larry's thesis too, I agree, agree with that. All right, and then the last one to wrap up the segment is core CPI. Okay, core CPI, big surprises toward the end of the year as the side effects of oil and commodities really matriculate in there and it blows out core CPI probably in the third, fourth quarter. All right, and that's, that wraps up the sermon, uh, says portion of the uh, show. Right, and uh, Sam's dog's fired up, so he loved the show, Larry. That's, that's a testament when Hazel, when Hazel barks, that's a good show. So um, thank you to our listeners. Uh, for, I didn't mention at the beginning, I was a little off at the beginning, but uh, we posted this on our YouTube channel. You can follow us on YouTube at youtube.com backslash double line capital. Um, also, we're at, on the Twitter at Sherman Show Pod. We keep cranking these out uh, with great guests. Larry, thank you for your time today. Uh, very informative as usual. Can't wait to check in with you when we're a lot wealthier on these trades in a couple of years. So again, thanks for all your time. Thanks for what you do out there. Uh, and we look forward to the next episode of Sherman So coming soon. Thanks again. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 DoubleLine Capital.